Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about women in 1 Corinthians. And joining me to do that, we have Dr. Logan Alexander-Williams, who just recently completed a PhD in New Testament from Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And we have Brandon Hurlbert, who is a PhD candidate in Old Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Brandon? Hey, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Lucy Pepiot, who is principal of Westminster Theological Center in the UK and author of several books, including Women and Worship at Corinth with Cascade from 2015, Unveiling Paul's Women with Cascade in 2018, and most recently, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women with IVP in 2019. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Pepiot. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about what has drawn you to 1 Corinthians in particular? Yes, I, my PhD was in systematic theology. I did something on Christ and the Spirit, Spirit Christology and um, theological anthropology and mission, which I loved and I do love systematic theology. Um, and I then went into teaching and I became the principal of a theological college, working mostly with evangelical students and evangelical charismatic world. And I found myself being asked a lot uh, about what I thought about women in leadership. And what did I think? What did I think about the Bible? What did I think about what Paul writes? And and I realized that uh, I had never done the work really for myself in because I'd never needed to. I was I had been able to do what I wanted. I hadn't been in a world. Uh, thankfully, really, where people had come to me and said, you cannot do that because the Bible says you can't. Mm. Um, And so I decided that um, integrity uh, called me to do my own work instead of saying, oh, gosh, I don't, you know, I think it's fine, (laughs) you know. Um, And so I decided that I would put aside a few days to um to look at the issue of what Paul said about women mm-hmm. and then made the mistake of starting with 1 Corinthians 11 2 to 16 and literally seven or eight years later I'm still going back to what Paul says about women and I it really was like that I thought I'll set aside some time just make some notes and then I'll have it all it'll all be fine and not only did I realize I had sort of stumbled into a huge uh, swamp of disagreement um but i also because i i don't know if you well you do realize because you guys have been in the uk it's very different over here so the the argument and the debate and the practicalities of it play out in a very different way um and we have a lot more freedom really i think i got sucked in to the debate and as I got sucked in, as I went over and over and over and over, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, sorry, 11, 2 to 16, and I already loved Paul. So I already, you know, I loved Paul's writings. And as a, someone who had been reading the Bible for 20 years or whatever before that, you know, I came to his letter, back to his letters as someone who was um, uh, someone who loved him and and so I wanted to really get to the bottom of it and I found I was like a dog with a bone I just couldn't let it go so there all my systematic theology sort of got put aside for a few years as I as I wrestled with some of these questions and um, 
I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. And I, but I, you know, I do always say, and it's true, I don't come to this as a Pauline scholar. I, I come to this as a systematic theologian who reads Paul and who has read a number of books on Paul, obviously. And I, you know, but I, I, and I think that you can tell I'm not a Pauline scholar by some of the answers I might have to some of the questions, which might go off in a different direction from how the scholar, because the scholars set the agenda, you know, the Bible scholars set the agenda for these are the parameters of the debate. And so we all have to be within these lines and actually, because I didn't feel constrained by that as I first, as I came to the text, I think I had a, a, a different perspective. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you mentioned a couple of times, First Corinthians 11. There's obviously a number of like really tricky verses in that chapter uh, to just to kind of like wrap your mind around. I wonder if maybe we could set the stage a little bit with what, what do you think Paul's sort of main strategy is there in, in that bit from first Corinthians 11. So when I say I came to the text as a theologian, I think that's important because I was coming to this bit in the letter that I didn't really see as a, a bit, as a discrete part. I, read it as to try and make sense of how does this fit in with everything that is going on in this letter and then everything that is going on in the other letters of Paul and um, all the other writings that we have that are ascribed to Paul or, you know, the sort of general theological and pastoral drift of where I think he's going. And so in the middle of all of this, you have a very, very unusual passage where Paul, I think, it, it, quite suddenly, uh, if it's Paul, and this is what um, confronted me, I think, is that if it's Paul, Paul quite suddenly becomes concerned with the way that women are appearing in public worship. So, and, and that's what you have to concede if you think that Paul wrote this. So what I what I wanted to dig into when I came to this passage was are the commentators that I'm reading being really honest about what this passage is doing and saying? And as I read them, I honestly didn't think they were being that honest. I thought they were trying to wriggle out of a deeply uncomfortable and quite frankly quite offensive text that is in there if Paul genuinely was saying all those things to these women in Corinth and then not only that but if that text then becomes the basis of how women are treated through the centuries in the universal church then that became even more awful to me and, and then to take that and plug that into Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, Paul the person who wrote Galatians, Paul the person who was in love with Jesus Christ, who's, you know, Jesus had turned his world and his life and everything completely upside down, who, who had lost everything for Jesus 
you know, given up everything. We don't even know what he means by that as to the extent of what he gave up. But we know that his whole world was turned upside down and that he ended up going in a direction he never imagined he would go in. And, and so I was trying to put all these pieces together because I'm a systematic theologian. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to find how these things connect. And I, I found that I couldn't, that I thought it was a deep disconnect. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of that. Could you maybe explain for those you know listeners on the go who aren't quite as familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians, just what, what's going on in chapter 11? Yes, yes, of course. So uh, for those readers who are not familiar with 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, I think you would be familiar with it if I read it, if I read it out to you. Um, but so let me just give you the couple of first verses. So 1 Corinthians 11, 3 says, Uh, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband. I'm reading from the NRSV here. So then this is one of the debates about whether Paul is saying husband or every man. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife or men are the head of women. And God is the head of Christ. Verse four, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head, disgraces his head or shames his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled, disgraces or shames her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. And then the the argument unfolds that because of this, she should wear a head covering. Well, that's in, in the NRSV. And in fact, in most to, uh, Bibles, I think it does go towards the head covering idea, although there is a debate about this passage as to whether it means the length of a woman's hair or whether she should wear it up. So I got really stuck into that debate as well. And I am persuaded that this passage is about women wearing head coverings, not about how they wear their hair. Although, interestingly, he goes on to talk about hairstyles later. So you mentioned that coming to the text as a theologian allowed you, uh, in your mind, to have a bit of honesty with yourself and honesty with your experience reading the text and how you think about the text. I find that comment really intriguing because a very common critique you hear of theologians is that they, they come with, with biases and they attempt to you know, save the text from its more uncomfortable aspects. But you're saying that qua theologian, you were actually able to address those uncomfortable aspects head on. Um, I'm wondering what you think it is about, you know, practicing as a theologian and thinking as a theologian that allowed you to really address uh, those problematic aspects, as opposed to sweeping them under the rug. Yeah, thanks. Um, So just to clarify, I think what I meant about coming to the text as a theologian is that I wanted to look for coherence, that rather than being honest about the affront of the text. So, but you did, but you're right. What I also found when I was reading certain Bible commentators, especially men, was that I thought they were sweeping the uncomfortableness of the text up under the carpet. So 
I thought, especially modern commentators, for instance, well, I'll give you an example with 1 Corinthians 11, 7, which um, says for uh, a man not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, right? Now, most ancient commentators believe that that in some way was saying that woman is not the image and glory of God. So they, they would just read it to say that because for them that was fine because man as, you know, Adam as who was created first was created in the image and glory of God and they would think, well, probably more Christ and then woman was created second, so she was created in his image and that's a fine thing to say. But when you get to the 20th century, and the 21st century, that's a difficult thing to say, and people don't want to say it. So they start saying, oh, well, no, probably Paul didn't really mean that. He probably meant that, you know, somehow the fact that woman is the glory of man is she's his crowning glory. Or they, and so they, they make something of the text to try and make it sound that it's not saying that woman is somehow derivative of man and therefore less glorious or less the image bearer. But actually, I think the text does say that. I mean, I, I think that the, that's a very legitimate reading of that text to, to read it to say that women, woman is derivative and therefore lesser in some way, mm. or, or carries the image differently, or does not have the glory. It, it, there's a mediator between woman and God, which is man, which is the male of the species, and he is the glory bearer and the image bearer in a different way. Now, that's not what we normally take from Genesis 1. Does that make more sense? I, it's not that I'm saying that I think that systematic theologians are better at uncovering the difficulties. What I was saying was that when I was reading modern commentators on the text, it seemed to me like they weren't facing the difficulties because the difficulties were too difficult. So one of the things that I would bring up, which I think is important, was my engagement with Michael Lakey's work, because I think this might help answer something around this question that you're getting at, which I think is a really good question about is the drive for coherence, is that a legitimate method or is it a legitimate way to start and is that going to skew the argument in a particular way? So I had a fascinating conversation with David Wenham about this when I was thinking it through and he who disagrees with me, which is great. So we had a really robust conversation about this. And he said, oh, you should read Michael Lakey's book, which Image and Glory of God, which I got hold of. And I was fascinated to meet, to read Michael's work and then subsequently met him. And he and I have had a couple of discussions on this, which one of them I think he recorded so, uh, for his postgrad students about how he and I come to the text in, from completely different perspectives. But what is so interesting about his perspective, and so he thinks that Paul wrote the whole of 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 11, 2 to 16. And I think that Paul is referring to Corinthian ideas in these in these verses and that the some of these ideas are coming through and then Paul is refuting them 
So I describe what I think is a rhetorical argument, and he actually looks for coherence in a completely different way. So he takes the, the verses 2 to 16 on their own merit, as it were, and says, this is Paul, so this is what I think he means by it. And what I loved about Michael Lakey's work is that I thought he was reading this text with more integrity because he brought out the real difficulties of this text if Paul really thought that. So if Paul really thought that, then he was an out-and-out subordinationist, not just in terms of, oh, this is how women should behave when they're in public because that's what decorum dictates and that's how, you know, and then everyone will think we're okay if they come in because the women are behaving well and the men are behaving well because we don't want to embarrass ourselves. It wasn't that. He brings out the idea that Paul actually believes that women were created subordinate and as lesser creatures in, in a cosmological sense, which is why they had to cover and keep their heads covered, because they didn't have the natural God-given glory that men have. And therefore, there was something offensive in, in them coming into the, the worship space without this head covering. And so they needed to have that sort of prophylactic sense. So the head covering is a kind of prophylactic protective, you know, between them in terms of the cosmology, it stands between them and the men and Christ and the angels, and it protects them and protects the community. Yeah. So I thought that's exactly what I see in the text. I think that's in the text. I think that that and I think there's a very interesting and clear argument that is built through these passages about this is why you should have your head covering. And if you don't have your head covering, you're bringing shame on yourself and on the men and on Christ and God and on the angels. Well, who knows what that means? But so Michael brings out the um, the kind of Stoic background and the Greco-Roman background that could potentially have been in Paul's mind if he thought overlaid with with Christian theology uh, and obviously his own Hebrew background and drawing from Genesis. And he builds a very cohesive picture of what these texts mean. But the, his, his uh, conclusion is that Paul thought women should cover their heads because if they didn't, there was this cosmological shame that they were bringing into the worship space. I think that's what the text says. So, so I, in, in my work, I say we, we're faced with certain choices. If, but what, what I want to push people on is if you think this is Paul, then you should be going with Michael on this, with Michael Lakey. You should be. And probably women should be wearing head coverings if you're evangelical. I, I, I have no idea why you don't think women shouldn't be wearing head coverings in church. If you, if you really are an evangelical and you really think that the Bible has that kind of authority for the way that we live our lives today, which I actually think it does. So, no, I don't think that I would gloss. I, I mean, I think that 
there is all sorts of fascinating conclusions we could come to from reading this text if we really let it speak for itself. Man, that is that is so interesting. And just and just for the uh, our listeners, uh, Dr. Pepe is not wearing a head covering. You can't see her, but just we just want to clarify that her stance is pretty clear here. Uh, but, um, but I do apologize to the men present, obviously. Uh, yeah. Well, and John's wearing head covering, by the way, just for the listeners, which yeah. I think he take off. I think you should take that off, John. So that you don't shame the rest well, of us. Well, you know, it's interesting. Verse four, you know, which talks about how, how men should remove their head covering when they pray. I, what I think is so fascinating about this passage in terms of kind of how we've appropriated it in evangelical culture is we don't want women to wear their head coverings anymore. We want to get past that. But yet men still take their hats off to pray. And in fact, it's not just men taking their hats off to pray. It's you go to a sporting event you better take your hat off out of reverence for America, right? Like, it's just interesting how we have continued to appropriate that aspect of this passage, but not women's head coverings. I just, I just think that lack of consistency is interesting. When I uh, go into the cathedral here, and there's been times where I've been wearing a hat, I can feel the, in, like, the impending like pressure of uh the heavens weighing down on my like, i'm just gonna take that off you know I, I i don't need to there's no you know i don't there's no reason i think that i but i just it feels right and i don't know maybe there's some kind of colloquial that, that's a very good point actually and i would like to pick up on that because i think that's why it this is it's so successful for people to argue that this is a culturally situated passage exactly because of what you've just cited because all of us will agree that we know it's in, intuitive for us it's normal it's our habitus that if you go into a place where you're supposed to be respectful men should take off their hats right so we all think that that is reasonably universal i would say in the west so when you tell a, a westerner reading this a man that they start off with that verse, you should take your head covering off if you're a man. Oh, yeah. Well, so of course it's culturally. Of course that's right. And that sounds right. And my mother, I mean, I've got a beautiful picture of my mother with a scarf. She used to wear scarves around her head when she went out to keep her hair in place. And, um, the, you know, not that long ago, women wore scarves. And I went to visit a Pentecostal church in Mexico not that long ago. And we walked through the door and this sweet lady just threw something over my head straight away. As soon as I walked through the door, she just could, you know, do. I was not going to sit there without a head covering on. But also the women in the village would normally have had their heads covered as well, more than we would here. So, so we are used to the idea that there is something in this passage that sort of chimes with us or resonates with us as it, oh yeah it must be cultural but when you dig into the argument the the reason he gives for the head coverings is not cultural and actually the cultural practices of Paul's world were difficult to map onto this so it's not if if it was easy for us to say, oh, everybody wore a head, you know, all the women wore head coverings, but they didn't. The Roman women, the the wealthy Roman women didn't wear head coverings. 
And the Jewish women had a different relationship with the head covering from the Greek women. And the Jewish men definitely had a different relationship with their head covering from the Greek men, you know. So we're actually talking about, and, and Corinth was multicultural and the church was multicultural. So when you say Paul was imposing a cult or, or, or wanting them to conform to a cultural standard out of decorum, that to, for me, that is the most problematic argument. That's the one I think is most wrong, actually. So I feel, no, that's where I want those people to read Michael and to wrestle with what he's saying, because I think that he's really pushing on that and saying it's not cultural. It's there are cultural elements in it. And and that's why it, it we, we find it so easy to gloss it in that way. But actually, I don't think that's what, what's in the text. On the previous podcast around these kind of issues, uh, we talked about how Paul can sometimes be read in a very liberative way uh, that he, he's some kind of proto-feminist. Uh, and then yet the same text can be read in ways that are just completely opposite, that he's, you know, some misogynist uh, or something like that. There's probably a better way, kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, you've said so far that um, if there are cultural elements, that it, it doesn't work the same way that many modern readers want to take that. Or would you say then, is the pendulum the other side where Paul is actually being very countercultural or is it, you know, with, in this text or is mm. the answer somewhere in the middle there? I think that this is a theological point for Paul. I, I think that he's coming against a twisted theological issue for the Corinthians. That's what I think. So I, I think that the Corinthian men have actually quite a sophisticated theology of gender and how men and women relate and how because of how they're created and how they enter the worship space. So I think this is very much around the the where the ecclesia comes together the the you know in the presence of God. I it, it, this is not just oh we're in our um, you know, sitting at a table together. Um, this is about being in God's presence and the angels are present, you know. So the Corinthians had, I think, quite sophisticated understandings of who they were in Christ, how their status, what they were capable of as spirit-filled creatures, their how they acted out the spiritual gifts, what that signified for them. All those kind of questions, I think, are tied up in here. They come into the worship space and these men are, they're domineering. I think they're very prophetic. I mean, obviously, prophecy is functioning highly in this congregation and tongues. And so and we all know that people can be actually hugely spiritually gifted and theologically pretty whacked, we say. <laughs> I'd like to know what you guys say. You know, theologically, right. that's not a very academic um, turn of phrase, is it? Theologically uh, heterodox. So, you know, so I think that that's what's happening in Corinth is that you've got these powerful male leaders 
who have a following um, and there are factions and they've decided in Paul's absence that there are certain protocol that everyone needs to adhere to because the cosmos functions in this particular way and men are created like this and women are created like that so that when we all come together we need to reflect that somehow in how we appear outwardly now that's a that's a normal thing for a person in the ancient world to think but did paul think that that's the challenge right that is the challenge for us and and what i'm saying is if you think paul thought that then you need to revise some of your readings of paul now with your rhetorical reading of 1 corinthians 11 this passage we're talking about do you still see sort of like the the rationale for why women should have these head coverings as being primarily related to their prophesying and praying in public worship, that that still reflects the fact that this was going on in Corinth, right? That women were praying and prophesying corporately. So with that, then maybe, maybe if we could shift to 1 Corinthians 14 to kind of close out this conversation, because in that passage there, at the very end, you have this infamous paragraph. Actually, it's really just two verses, isn't it? That says, you know, women should be silent, right? And, and, and this is how it goes in all the churches. It's shameful for them to speak in church. If they have any questions, you know, they should go back and they should ask their husbands uh, later on. I'm just curious to know what you think about this, because this is a, this is a difficult passage, I think, no matter how you kind of understand it. But if it is the case that women are praying and prophesying in Corinth, why would Paul then say it's shameful for them to speak in church? If you think it's Paul. Correct. Right. So I, I am I am somebody who doesn't <laughs> think that Paul wrote this. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So but, so just say so for the, for the listeners. So one of the um, ways of approaching this text mm-hmm. uh, is to say that it was uh, inserted later. This is definitely what I think. Partly in the way that I set up the question, it seems to me that if women are praying and prophesying in Corinth, then Paul doesn't think it's shameful for women to speak in church. And that seems kind of contradictory. You know, there's the external evidence, like the fact that it shifts later in the Western tradition. It's found at the end of the chapter. You know, there's also weird elements of the passage like Paul appeals to the law and it's like well where does the law say that women should be silent in church right and then I I would say kind of maybe just as a last point it does seem to me like this is a categorical statement right like it's hard for me to see that it's particular or specific it feels very it feels very axiomatic I'm just curious maybe just to hear your thoughts about this I think that it is it's a difficult little piece just in the middle there and it sort of feels like it doesn't fit so I do understand uh, I understand the perspective that it had it was just sort of inserted but from my perspective I still think it is part of this process that Paul's going through of responding to certain things that the Corinthians have said to him in their letter and I I do recognize that if they in one place they said, oh, if women speak, they have to speak like this. And then in another place they say, but here, I mean, obviously they're speaking to married women here. 
which is, does put a slightly different slant on it because if it they and it does say they should ask their husband or oh, well ask yeah ask their husbands at home but are they potentially they could be talking about if they pray and prophesy here then that's allowed if they have a head covering on so bear in mind i you know i'm thinking this is the corinthians you're imposing this that this isn't paul and then later that they had also have some kind of prohibition on married women interrupting or asking things that they don't want them to interrupt and and so they have another yet another prohibition the the reason i think that this is part of paul's rhetorical process in 1 corinthians is because also in when he addresses the tongues and prophecy, he there's a there is again this appeal to the law, which is strange and out of place in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 25. And there is actually a direct contradiction in these in these verses, which in fact, in a funny way, you see, I found this more interesting. Well, I, I mean, I'm interested in the women, <laughs> in the women thing, but when I came across when I started researching on this, there's fewer people have written on the idea that there might be a rhetorical process going on or argument going on in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 25. But I think it's even clearer there that, Paul, that the Corinthians are saying this is why we speak in tongues and this is why we prophesy and this is the effect it has on the outsider, the person coming in. And Paul's saying, don't be ridiculous. You're so childish. You, Why do you think that if you're all babbling in tongues, that the outsider is going to come in and, and be, you know, be overwhelmed by the presence of God because they're just going to think that you're babbling. Whereas if you prophesy, you know, so I think they had prioritized well, they, they'd elevated the gift of tongues above prophecy because that was the gift that made them, that sort of proved to them how spiritual they were. And Paul is, is reversing the order on them and giving them a rationale for why. So he overturns their argument. And, and there's a similar, there's a similar, what I bring out in Women and Worship is that there's a similar pattern to, to these uh, sections of 1 Corinthians 11 and then the two in 14 where you have Paul citing them asking them a rhetorical question and then giving his answer that's what I think is going on so uh, so I think I see the same in 14 33 to 36 but you know you can't I mean I, I always say that you, no one's going to prove anything we can't prove these things we can't go into the text that we haven't got Paul here to tell us so we are literally like putting clues together it's like we're sort of piecing things together and I for me I've pieced things together in a way that gives me some kind of understanding of the text that makes sense to me of the of everything else but you know it's an ongoing conversation so we'll keep talking but but we we you know we're doing our best with what we have what would you say about those who who really have a deep sense that this is really what paul commands hmm. and that paul is actually commanding you know women you know to stop speaking to wear head coverings um to consider themselves as derivative and you know, theologically and creationally subordinate by nature. Do you think that despite your disagreements, there is some sense in which by honoring their reading of the text, they are still being honest to their conscience? And um, how do we navigate those disagreements? 
when there are legitimately different readings that people are convicted of mm-hmm. that leads to their belief that they, you know, in order to obey the word, they must, you know, encourage things to play out this way. What does negotiating those disagreements look like uh, in, in a church context? Because obviously what we don't want to do is, is simply denounce such people because there is a kind of honest and, and earnest effort to respect the word in, in, in so doing. Um, mm. So I'm just wondering what the practical implications of, uh, you know, when we do disagree on these things, what, you know, how does that, what's the wisest way to let that play out without creating just absolute chaos? Well, I would say that for people who have beliefs that such as you've described, um, which I think it is, would be if you wanted to take these verses from Paul literally, I still think that you do have a lot of problems with taking those verses on their own without taking into account the rest of the Bible. And so what would, I think it would be very important for those people to have continuing conversation with scholars and in a context where they can read the whole Bible and understand, you know, hear different perspectives. I mean, if they if they didn't want to hear any different perspectives, then that would be their choice. But I don't think it would be right to hold those views and not to open yourself up to why people like me and many, 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 many other people who have also studied the scriptures and who who also want to be faithful disciples of Jesus and who also think that they are honoring the scriptures in in the way that we read it. So not to even enter into that conversation would be strange and uh, short-sighted, I think. And then if they were willing to enter into that conversation, and I do have those conversations with people, obviously, who have come from backgrounds like that, I find that it's difficult to hold on to that view um, uncompromisingly once you understand why other people think really differently from you having studied the whole Bible. Yeah, Dr. Pepe, so what would you say about, you know, who, what would you say to the people who uh, they want to see more women in leadership, they want to see uh, women get more involved in preaching and teaching and a variety of ministries, but what holds them up is this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Like, what, what would you say to those people who are getting stuck on these passages? Where should they yeah. start that journey of wrestling more with mm-hmm. God's word? Well, thanks for asking that, because I actually am in touch with a lot of people who are in this process. You probably won't be surprised to hear um, because they come to me and uh, they're either at the beginning of thinking, I suppose, of wanting, well, they want to live out their Christian lives with integrity and they want to uh, honour the authority of the scriptures. and. I think that's wonderful. And uh, but they have something has happened in their lives to cause them to question on this issue of have I been taught it exactly how it is? 
How, you know, uh, have I absorbed these ideas about men and women and God in the way that the Bible teaches exactly, or are there some things I might be missing? So it sort of niggles, I think, of, you know, coming, a, beginning to think maybe there's something I ought to find out about. And um, first of all, I would say any theological curiosity is brilliant and we should foster that so if people want to start learning more that's a great thing but I and whenever I teach on this issue of women I always say to people you must do your own research you really must do your own reading and your own study and your own weighing up of what people are telling you is true yeah so it, it's very important to come to your own convictions over this issue. And one of the difficulties for a lot of women is that they've been told what to think. And actually, they need some space to work it out for themselves. So first of all, I would say, start reading. Go, go back to the Bible first. You know, read the Bible and read the whole Bible and, and then read books on women in the Bible um, by men and women and uh, people who, who are celebrating the way that women are used by God throughout history, because that will begin to give you a sense of, oh, yes, these are the people that God chose to work out his purposes throughout history. And when you start to learn about those people, it, it, it brings this to life. It's not two verses in two of Paul's letters. It's the history of God's people through the ages. And God has used men and women alike. He just does. And so begin to learn the narratives of the people who God has used and why they thought it was OK for God to use them. I just I do actually just want to mention I've just finished reading this amazing book by Lisa Bones, African-American readings of Paul. It's absolutely brilliant. And so what you could go you can start this journey with with it, it go in at any point, I would say. But read the bible and then if you really want to to understand why people like me think like i do then read the stories of the women who have done what they think god is calling them to do in the history of the church it because that is inspiring and it's so fascinating reading these stories there's a lot of testimony in this book by lisa burns but i mean it's a brilliant scholarship but she's She's drawn from texts and memoirs and, you know, um, histories of African-Americans in the last 200 years who were told by white slave owners and by the white church, this is what Paul thinks of you. And God broke in by his Holy Spirit and showed them their value and who they were in God's eyes. And so they then said, no, the Bible does not mean this. It means that. Now, that's a fascinating thing for me to read that. And um, and of course, there are many women in that in this in these stories who were then raised up to preach, uh, to teach at great cost to themselves and, you know, in needed huge courage. One woman who went back as a free woman into the to the um, 
south and was preaching and she could have been captured and you know she could have been killed i mean they're really inspirational so my my exhortation would be read 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 talk to people open up the conversation and um, ask people why they have come to the conclusions they've come to another book i really love is how i changed my mind about women in leadership or why i changed my mind about women in leadership with a wonderful forward by dallas willard and i would read things like that just read people's stories of why they the same bible that they have read for many 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 years begins to say something different to them well thanks for that advice and for those recommendations we really appreciate having you join us today to talk both about the particularities of the text but also the big picture and being mindful of the greater story in which men and women are, are being used by god for various purposes so we're just so grateful to have you join us today thank you so much for inviting me i've really enjoyed speaking with you all thank you thanks for being with us yeah thanks for joining us If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.